Welcome back to the Gold Factor Podcast, your guide and gateway to a life of purpose and fulfillment. I'm your host, Bernadette Gold, transformation and high performance coach, here to lead you through another chapter of my audiobook, The Crooked Path to a Charm Life, a clairvoyant medium's journey to embracing her spiritual gifts. Now remember, each episode of season one is a new chapter in the book as we traverse the realms of the seen and the unseen. So let's dive in and continue our adventure together. It's time to think bigger, feel deeply, and act boldly. Chapter 11, Returning Home. Before returning to California on my 28th birthday, I reached out to Robbie. I thought about him a lot, but was afraid to talk to him after everything we had gone through. Now a mom, I had grown up a lot since our divorce, yet I still felt empty, like something was missing. We made small talk, catching up on the last few years. He was happy I finally had a child. I asked him if he remembered our promise about getting back together if we were both still single at 30. He became quiet before announcing he had met someone. I told him I was happy for him. I let him know I was moving back to California, and if he ever needed anything, to look me up. He wished me a happy birthday, and we hung up. Still missing him, I accepted the ending. I wrote in my journal, releasing the sadness as much as possible. It would be the last conversation we would have for over a decade. As I spoke at the beginning of the book, during our move back to California, the Oklahoma bombing happened. My uncle's stepson, Grant, and I met through that tragedy, becoming fast friends, confidence, and family. We partied a lot, met new friends, spent every weekend together, somehow putting the terrors behind me. Yet, I would soon find out I was suppressing my fears, anger, and sadness. Something besides the endless partying with Grant and my new friends started to happen at this time. My interest in metaphysics and spirituality began to grow. Books began to appear in my life that interested me and helped open my mind to new spiritual concepts. The Seth material by Jane Roberts was one of the many books I began studying. In addition, quantum physics and expanded ideas of the nature of reality fascinated me. I started journaling again, and memories of the big vision returned. Dating was challenging, since I measured everyone I met to the standards set by Robbie. Of course, I distrusted men so gravely, they never had a chance. I remembered how I felt about him, so others had to meet that ideal. No one could hold a candle to him. My heart still belonged to Robbie. He had moved on, and I had to as well. I ran through a few different relationships in San Diego, nothing lasting longer than six months. Determined to find love, I wanted to create a relationship that lasted over six months. I started dating Drake, an entrepreneur, training to be a commercial pilot. 
I loved him, yet it felt lonely, always being put last on his list. We lasted six months, and then some. While sitting in his office one day, I asked him where I fit in his life. His response was, in between flights, baby. He must have seen the shock on my face as he followed that up with, you won't leave me. You love me. He was right. I did love him. But I was unwilling to accept such blatant devaluing. Without another word, I ran to my car in tears, driving away. That night, in La Jolla, while out singing karaoke, a guy sitting at a table reading a book caught my eye. Brian Thomas was a handsome, wealthy artist. He loved to read and study spiritual books. Brian was a regular at the restaurant, yet we had never met. I was excited when he invited me to join him. Before the night was over, Brian asked if he could take me out to dinner. I explained. I just fought with my boyfriend, but I gave him my number and told him I'd think about it. Drake hadn't called by the next day, but Brian did. He again extended the invitation to dinner. Without thinking, I accepted. I called Drake right away and broke up with him. Just like that, it was over. Brian fascinated me. We would drink wine, and he read Carlos Castaneda books to me. We exchanged ideas about magic, life, art, and music. He was different than most men I knew. Something about him intrigued me, but also scared me. We talked for hours. He was the first romantic partner since Robbie that seemed to care about how I saw the world my gifts, and my feelings. It was intoxicating. I began seeing Brian casually. After several failed attempts at relationships, I liked the casual, laid-back nature of our relationship. We had amazing chemistry together, but it never felt real. Then one day, he sent me into his closet to fetch a tie. I looked around, finding a black duffel bag half open. I was shocked to see tens of thousands of dollars in cash. Later, he told me how he left Mexico City right after the crash of the peso. He had owned a thriving upscale hair salon. Overnight, he lost his business and all his money in the bank. When he returned to the United States, he didn't keep large sums of money in the bank because he didn't trust the financial system. The fact that he even had so much cash surprised me, mainly because he expected me to pick up and buy the wine and cheese before going to his house. I was a single mom. It started getting on my nerves. Brian was partnered in business with a woman in La Jolla, flipping houses. He remodeled them, and they split the profit. He had his eye on an old wooden sailboat he wanted to restore next. He shared his dreams of the future with me. I listened and offered encouragement. Most nights we spent together included a couple of bottles of wine. He drank a lot. Months pass, and I was still singing karaoke in La Jolla at the little restaurant we met. 
He never took me out to eat after our first dinner. Instead, he would show up at the end of the night to make sure I went home with him. One holiday weekend, Brindy joined me at his house. She liked playing in such an ample space. He made glass bowl sculptures and oil paintings when he wasn't remodeling. Brindy enjoyed watching him paint. We seemed to be getting closer, but something kept me from opening up to him or taking him seriously. One night, out of the blue, he started talking about our future while in the kitchen making dinner. He told me how he wanted me to marry him, that he wanted me to stay barefoot in the kitchen and have a dozen kids like they do in Mexico. I laughed until I realized he was serious. He went on to tell me Brindy would go to boarding school, somewhere posh like France. I started listening intently. I asked why she would need to do that. He explained he wanted her to have a good education. As I pressed further about the hypothetical dozen kids, it became clear. They weren't destined for boarding school. I was to stay home and raise them all while my firstborn daughter was sent away. I woke up early the next day, gathered our things, and headed for my apartment. Brian was still asleep, so I snuck out as quietly as I could. As far as I was concerned, things were over. I had set Brian up to do voiceovers for phone systems that the company I worked for sold. He was happy to do it, as he had done some in the past. His voice was super deep and sounded authoritative, but sexy. Avoiding his calls at home, I was forced to see him for the voiceover work. He begged me to go to lunch with him, but I made excuses. Feeling guilty, I finally called him. I explained I didn't want to get married, nor did I like the idea of sending Brindy to boarding school. After trying unsuccessfully to get me back, he finally gave up and moved on. I was back to spending my nights and weekends studying metaphysics and spirituality. My mind was expanding, and so was my understanding. The more I learned, the more I could sense, feel into things, and sort myself out. Unfortunately, I wasn't getting messages from the angels anymore. Yet I still thought they guided me. So books on channeling and the Seth material became an obsession. Astrology, tarot, runes, I Ching, and numerology books piled up on my bed. Mysteries of the universe became my obsession. The more I studied, the hungrier I became, wanting to fill myself with knowledge. Before long, I composed stacks of spiral notebooks filled with notes and journal entries. One day, a thought stream began to develop in my mind. These thoughts were not my own. Pictures, words, and metaphors filled my mind, creating a massive internal shift in how I perceived life. I began furiously taking notes as the information poured into me. I wasn't sure what was happening, but I knew something within me 
was changing, remembering, waking up. Chapter 12, A Cry for Help. Finally, in elementary school, Brindy was making new friends, feeling more secure, discovering herself. I was working as a marketing coordinator and executive assistant for an electronics firm. The intranet was growing, and the internet was born. Digital marketing was emerging as a new way for companies to find customers. Work was challenging as I took on two separate roles. Taking work home became routine. Late at night, I worked on graphic design and copy as the company began to embrace the World Wide Web. Spiritual studies took a back seat, as did personal growth and healing. Brindy was enrolled in a magnet school focused on music and the arts. She was bused to her school from home, then dropped off at my office in the afternoon. She spent hours working on drawings as I worked. I had no child support from her father as he disappeared after our divorce. It was solely up to me to feed, house, and care for us. Brindy was becoming very independent, stubborn, and her behavior was changing since she'd entered grade school. Her new attitude was reflected in how she talked to me. She started getting a little bossy, if not unruly. Granted, I held massive guilt over what her dad had done to her. I had indulged her with toys, special treats, anything I could to make her happy and make myself feel better. Unfortunately, temper tantrums were often happening, escalating into throwing things and screaming at me. Mornings were spent struggling to get her ready for school and onto the bus. Each morning at the bus stop, she waited at the back of the line to get on. Then, just as her turn approached, she would turn and run down the street with me chasing her in heels. Finally, the bus driver and I devised a plan to avoid the dangers of her running near the road. I held her back until he was ready to close the door, then quickly put her inside, and he promptly shut the door. Once on, she found her seat and was a model bus rider. In fact, around others, she was an angel. However, at home, especially after a long week at school, she became demanding. We started arguing constantly. When things got too overwhelming, I'd lock myself in the bathroom to calm down. She was on the other side, putting something under the door, talking, screaming, and kicking it. She did anything she could to try and get me to come out and pay attention to her. Work was demanding, and sleep escaped me most nights. I didn't notice the depression and anxiety building within me. Disconnected, scattered, and burned out, I began to snap. I had very little help from my mom, who only lived 90 minutes away. If I took time to recharge, I had to pay a babysitter. Babysitters were often hard to come by. I did have a friend, Candy, 
a stay-at-home caregiver to a son with multiple sclerosis who helped on occasion. Hometown Buffet was Brindy's favorite restaurant. After a week of fighting with her, I figured we could use a treat on a Friday night. Wearing stained, dirty clothes, I told her to change into a dress so we could go to dinner. Immediately, she snapped back at me, saying, you're not the boss of me. That didn't hit me right. I completely lost it. I began screaming at her to change her clothes or we would stay home. She rose to the challenge and roared back. I sent her straight to her room for a timeout. I was pacing in my tiny kitchen when I heard through our open windows, Somebody save me. My mommy doesn't love me. What? What in the hell is she doing? I thought. I continued listening as she yelled through a fake cry, Save me. Please save me. I marched into her room, flung open the door, to see her standing with her face pushed against the screen. Her room was barren, as I had removed most of her toys earlier in the week as a punishment for arguing. I told her again to stop and get dressed so we could go. Exhausted, hungry, and angry, I turned to leave. Just as I was ready to close her bedroom door, she grabbed her small lamp and threw it at me. It hit the hallway wall inches from my head. I marched into her room, closed the window, stripped her bed, and left. It became a war as I locked her in her room by tying a string from her door to the bathroom door to keep her in since the door had no lock. She continued to kick the door, yell, and do other crazy things. When emotions are out of control and reactions are entirely unconscious, you tend to lose track of reality. I was not in control of myself, and most definitely not in control of her. I can only imagine what our neighbors thought. Finally, my neighbor Candy called to check on us. She could hear us going at each other. I explained what was happening and expressed my frustration. She laughed, but told me if I needed anything to call. Well past midnight, Brindy fell asleep, with me lying on the floor in the hall. I felt like crap. Neither one of us had eaten, and neither one of us had won the fight. Bright and early, Saturday morning, the yelling began, as if we hadn't stopped from the night before. I called my mom, asking if she would take Brindy for the weekend, telling her things had escalated between us, not surprising. Her answer was no, because she had plans to go shopping at the mall. She didn't want to have to take her granddaughter with her. I hung up the phone, pissed but not surprised. The battle intensified. I'm not changing. If you don't take me to eat now, I'm calling CPS, Brindy yelled. CPS? Where did you hear that? I retorted. The school told us that if someone is hurting you, to call CPS. I'm calling CPS and telling them you are a bad mommy. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. 
I'm calling CPS on you, I responded. I was reaching a dangerous point in my frustration. I talked to Candy on the phone, telling her I understood how some people beat their kids or hurt them. She must have heard the desperation in my voice. She told me Brindy's behavior was not normal, and I needed help. With compassion, she gave me the number to the crisis line and instructed me to hang up and make a call quickly. Without a clue as to what I would say to the nice woman who picked up the phone, I broke into loud sobs. She asked my name and had me take some deep breaths. In the background, Brindy was yelling. I calmed myself enough to retell the events of the night before. I asked her if it was normal behavior. She said, no, honey. Something is going on here, and you need help. I told her I didn't have insurance, couldn't afford counseling, and the school wasn't helping. I wanted help for her and myself. Her behavior in school was changing. She was getting in trouble for disrupting class. The crisis line woman listened intently before saying, you two need to be separated for a while. Separated? What do you mean? She explained she had a child with mental illness and behavior problems. She went on to explain that she and her son were briefly separated to get help. Assuring me that it all worked out for her, she asked if I had family nearby. I explained the situation and Brindy's molestation, how we moved to start over. She seemed to understand what was happening. She instructed me to call 911 and ask for a police officer to come get Brindy. Following her advice, I called and told them I was suicidal and had a five-year-old child. When the police arrived, they were friendly, but scary. They called the crisis line and spoke to the woman, then handed me the phone. She confirmed that Brindy would go with Child Protective Services, and we would get help. The officers told me I had to go with them to County Mental Health. A second police car arrived, taking Brindy into protective custody. I was placed into the back of a sheriff's car and walked into County Mental Health. Plain, dull green walls, worn out from years of use, lined the County Mental Health Hall. I suddenly felt like I was in trouble. While I hadn't done anything wrong, I felt like a criminal. The on-call psychiatrist prescribed Zoloff and Xanax before sending me home. I had no way to get home, so I reluctantly called Drake for a ride. He asked what happened. I tried to tell him as briefly as I could. He wasn't surprised because he knew I was having a hard time with Brindy. On the drive home, he said I had scared him when we were together, mentioning that I had felt I had a dark cloud of shit that followed me everywhere. Then, without emotion or empathy, he pulled in front of my apartment, telling me to get out and took off. Once inside, I found the card with the phone number to call and talk to Brindy. I wanted to call the crisis line woman first. She wasn't in, 
but I left a message for her to call me back when she returned. Then I called Brindy, reaching Brindy quickly at the temporary holding center. Surprised, she excitedly told me how it was a fun summer camp. Knowing she didn't understand what was happening, I explained she would have to be away from me for a while. She didn't mind, saying she liked where she was. It felt like I was out of body, not comprehending the seriousness of what was happening. I told her I'd call tomorrow and for her to have fun. Hanging up the phone, I broke into a million pieces. Sobbing uncontrollably, I felt like a complete failure. How had this happened? Was I so damaged and broken I couldn't raise a child? Alone in an all-too-quiet apartment, I fell into an exhausted sleep. Startled, I was jolted awake by the sound of the phone ringing on Sunday. Answering it, the voice of the crisis counselor said, Hi, Bernadette. I'm the crisis counselor you spoke to yesterday. Glad to hear from her, she gave me several numbers to call to begin the process of getting help. I called in sick that Monday, telling my boss there were things I had to take care of. Social services called to schedule a visit from my assigned caseworker for that same day. She was friendly and helpful in explaining how my case was unique. She said the agency wished more parents used the services like I did, instead of beating their kids. Together, we completed paperwork for Brindy to receive medical assistance. We also made written plans for reunification, made psychology appointments, and screening for both of us. She informed me that they located and secured a temporary foster home for Brindy, not far from home. The worker estimated a year apart so we could both heal. As part of our treatment plan, a screening was scheduled for Brindy to test for ADD and learning disabilities. Finally, someone was listening. The 20-minute screening turned into weeks of repeated attempts since she couldn't focus long enough to get through it. After waiting a month, the psychologist diagnosed ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, with Impulsivity Disorder. We were referred to an ADHD specialist. Brindy and I met with her separately with the goal of joint counseling when she was back in my care. Dr. K recommended I study books specifically about the brain, ADHD, and sexual trauma. Studying the early work of Dr. Daniel Amen, I began to understand the cause of Brindy's behavior and how it developed. Forced to hold attention and behave all day, she had no choice but to be unregulated when she arrived home. The psychiatrist prescribed four different medications, Adderall for attention, Zoloft for depression, Respartal for impulsivity, and another to keep her blood pressure from spiking, which is a side effect of Respartal. Her school performance and her behavior began improving. Once a week, 
I picked up Brindy from her foster home to take her to appointments with Dr. K. Usually, the effects of the medicine had worn off, which made it challenging to hold Brindy's attention. Dr. K, a mother of two ADHD kids, was patient and persistent. I learned a great deal from Dr. K's sessions. She taught simple things like, don't sweat the small stuff. Everything is small stuff. She made me feel like I wasn't so terrible a person or mother. In the olden days, entire villages raised the children, not just one parent. Solo parenting wasn't helping. Nor was the expectation that a child sits still, focusing for six to eight hours a day. Time marched on as Brindy and I worked our way through the maze of living separately. I'd gotten a new job as director of business development in downtown San Diego. The location allowed easy access to Brindy's foster home and Dr. K. During one of our visits, Brindy told me her grandmother had taken her to McDonald's. My mother and I were not on speaking terms. I was informed by the social worker that my mother was very critical of me. No surprise. Mama told the worker that I was a lost cause, and she intended to fight for custody of Brindy. Custody? Are you kidding me? Hanging up the phone? I was furious, thinking, the woman who had to shop the weekend this whole mess started? Now. Wants to save my child from me? Fucking genius, I screamed. The things mom told social services about me resulted in supervised visits. Grandma's visits continued for a few weeks as we approached our first court hearing. The foster mom, concerned, told the worker and me that my mom told Brindy I wasn't coming back for her. Until that restriction, I visited twice a week and took Brindy to her appointments with Dr. K. Now, limited to only supervised lunch visits, the foster mom had to take Brindy to her psychology appointments. Dr. K spoke up for me to social services. She divulged my childhood abuse from my mom with my consent. Social services interviewed Brindy and the foster mom, confirming my mother had told Brindy I wasn't coming back for her. Concerned that she would be emotionally damaged, they remanded my mother to supervise visits and removed supervision limits from me. I was astonished at the lies my mom was telling during the first court hearing. My brother sided with her. No one had been around her or me much since moving to California, yet my mom was determined to take custody of my daughter. I was grateful the court was able to see through the bullshit. The judge in the hearing went over the half-inch thick file and said, most cases that come before me are full of reports several inches thick. Your case is the smallest I've ever seen. I commend you for knowing your limit and loving your child enough to get help. Continue following the recommended counseling. I'm sure 
you and your daughter will be reunited quickly. For the first time in months, I felt human again. Maybe I wasn't the worst person on the planet after all. Perhaps I wasn't all the things my mother had said either. I did do the right thing. I missed my daughter tremendously, but I knew we were getting the counseling and help we needed. Dr. K was teaching me patience and tolerance. I knew with continued work, Brindy and I would heal. Throughout the last 21 years of coaching people, I learned an interesting coincidence. Many of the clients that came to work through past sexual trauma were diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. So I began to note the link and ask Spirit about it. From my limited understanding, the brain has to shut down certain areas to suppress the traumatic memories. It does so to allow the person to move on with life until they can process or heal. Sometimes the brain shuts down the parts that control impulses, focus, and attention. Since the time of these events, PTSD has been discovered and added to the DSMV manual. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Gold Factor Podcast. Want some free resources? Well, join my Facebook community, a group of heart-centered, ambitious individuals just like you. Just go and visit the link in the description, or you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups, the gold factor. And remember, if you're enjoying the book so far, follow the podcast, leave a review. I'd really appreciate it as we're launching and growing the podcast and share it on social media. All right. I'll see you in the next episode. Have a great day. Be blessed and be a blessing.